If you like stats, focus football. Boom, boom, boom. And getting lost in the rain. If you're not into hot takes. And you don't do cocaine. Boom, boom, boom. If you like listening to podcasts. Dum, dum. If you're not into yoga. Dum, dum, dum. Come with me and escape. But I'm hellishly elastic for a man my size. <laughs> okay. No, that's out of our systems. Welcome to Chapel Bell Curve, the Stats Focus podcast about UGA football. I'm Nathan. And I'm Justin. And today we're coming to you late but still number one in your hearts number 10 on your podcast queue number one in your hearts uh, to talk about the notre dame game i like to think that our takes are aged like fine wine um (laughs) to give you some (laughs) over the last 48 hours Mm -hmm. to give you some background uh we were going to record yesterday which doesn't mean anything to you we were going to record the monday after the notre dame game but then uh justin's computer died so here we are back tuesday after the notre dame game hopefully going to put out on the wednesday but it is the bye week, so all we have to beat is the bye week. So I think pretty sure we're going to win that game. Hey. Um, so before we get into a review of what was, I mean, I think a superlative game day experience for me in all regards. And I think I think the general consensus is the best, the best game day atmosphere ever at Sanford. You know, before we get into that, we do have a couple of like podcast business things. Podcast business. Do you want to do you want to give them the the deets for the tweets? Deets for the, the tweets. Yeah, they'll be in the tweets. We have a merch store now. We have a merch store. It's a merch store full of merch. We have created a few uh, products that we would love for you to check out. And if it's something you enjoy, then snag it. All the money goes right back into the show. We do have yeah. one uh, one shirt that has. Well, it's probably going to get us a cease and desist. I'm not going to kid, but. Uh, that's fine. There is a shirt with the names of our five running backs in rotation. And uh, since the students do not make money on their own likenesses, we've decided that we are going to take any money that goes into that shirt and donate it right back to the Kirby Smart Foundation Fund so that we're also not making money on their likenesses. So everything else yeah. goes back in the show, but that one goes straight to the Kirby Smart Foundation. Yeah. The so. really, the really, really f***ed up thing about that is that like we don't have to do that. We're just trying to be like moral people. But honestly, we could make all the money off their names we wanted, but we're not going to because we're not heads. Before we get into that, we, we will have the link on. Uh, it's it's an Etsy store, and we all have the link up in the show notes, and then also it's on the website already now too. So if you go to chapabellcurve.com, yeah. there's a merch ta- uh, tab that you can click on. It'll go straight yeah. to the store, and we'll we'll be sort of evolving this. Uh, we hope to have like a very basic logo shirt and a trucker hat up by the time this comes out. Mm-hmm. No pressure, Justin. Yeah, no problem. Um, <laughs> That, that one's easy. So we're <laughs> probably get that one done. Well, we hope to have that up before this goes live. So you'll be able to get sort of some of our more bespoke productions, uh, as well as some more generic Chapel Bell Curve stuff. So anything else before we get into the meat of the episode here? I think that's all the housekeeping. Okay, cool. So let's talk about how things went on Saturday. Uh, well, I think, but before we get into the numbers, I want to talk about our before we get into this in more detail, I do want to talk about our experiential, um, you know, stuff, the stories, the narratives that we have coming out of this game, our personal experiences, and just both like, you know, subjective emotional experience, because I think that was a really big part of this game. And I think it would be a shame not to give that part of it justice. 
because I have a lot to say about this game uh, as, as uh, when it comes to my experience, I want to, because I have a lot of fun stories from the day. I, I wonder if you would like to start us out. I, I'm really excited to hear all about your day, but I really loved this game since it was a night game. I got to wake up super early with my dog and my wife, and we took the dog up to the bakery and got to speak to some very nice uh georgia fans essentially and and i found a hat on the road and a flag on the road and so that was pretty fantastic got to see did all you of the, take the hat i did take the hat it was on the ground on the road and so i took the hat if you're is missing it a knife hat? it's a, nice, is it a hat. nice hat if someone's missing a red georgia cool. hat with a g on and then let me know but i doubt that you know the, the chances are that that person's listening to our show is, is probably pretty slim but hey if you are let me know it's a nice hat yeah we got to do all that and i still got to take a nap and then eventually we we went out down to uh, we, we drove our car up to the top of the hill because we live on the bottom of Lumpkin near Macon Highway. So that's a hell of a hill to walk up twice in one day. But we, mm-hmm. we drove up the hill, parked our car in one of the neighborhoods and went walking, visited some friends at a tailgate on Millage. There's a tailgate on Millage at this house that is boarded up that I never knew what it actually was for or why it was been boarded up. But it's been boarded up since I've been here for the last nine years or so. But it's on really. Yeah, it's on Millage right after Baxter going towards broad and it's on the right if you're going that way and it's this big boarded up house and from what i understand and what i was able to gather uh people buy into this tailgate location and they can all park their cars there and stuff but the guy that owns it apparently it's a historical property technically and so he would have to follow a lot of very strict guidelines if he wanted to renovate and sell it and so instead he's kind of you know shoving it to the man and saying well i'm just going to board it up and when it's finally ready to be like demolished i'll just demolish it (laughs) like sure that's I guess. dark yeah <laughs> and then he'll make a new one is what he thinks but i mean he owns it so it is what it is but i, I had never known what that house was for this but. reminds me of my favorite season the fall of capitalism <laughs> that's awesome and then we actually saw each other a little bit during the day too we did which yeah is also great. that was just the first half of the day we, we made our way down uh after that it was about four o'clock so we went down to the Sousa show got to see the warm-up for the Sousa show and and uh this is where we got to see the the warm-up for Fat Bottom Girls, which you can talk about, uh, the Queen song, and then Misty Mountain Cold. And I actually have some recordings of that that I'll play probably right here in the actual show when you get to listen to this later. turned out to be really really awesome got to see the dog walk and battle him and see our, our family that tailgates right there on tate and uh it was just overall just a really awesome positive experience and then we we walked back to the car and watched uh, on the tv <laughs> which was pretty outstanding after having uh, had to interact with all of those people all day but athens lost its damn mind and somehow got it back in the span of 48 hours so it's a beautiful place we live in but walk me through your day nathan Tell me about what happened from the beginning to end. Uh, so let's see. We got up um, not too early. The call was not until noon. So we tried to get there a little bit earlier. We got there around 1030, parked, went over to the Waiting Since Last Saturday guys tailgate and had just a delightful time there for a minute. We um, It was really funny. We I didn't get to see Will, but I got to see Scott and Tony from Waiting Since Last Saturday, which was really cool. 
and uh we actually got to meet their family um and that was just like a really sweet nice time and actually tony has a sort of perspective red coat in the family i think because she was very 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 excited one of his or his daughter was very excited to talk to me about red coats and uh, hopefully we'll be able to get her out to a practice or a performance soon um we'd love to have her because she seems like a great person uh and then we went over to red coat practice and did that and got real sweaty i had ten thousand steps about a quarter of the way into red coat practice before we'd even really gotten onto campus yet so that was the kind of day it was going to be from the get um we then went over to the tate grand ballroom and we served up lunch for the red coats and then we uh did the whole susa search thing and susa tones and we did debuted a new song it's uh the susa show fat bottom girls we got another new one coming out the next at south carolina and then probably actually two new songs at south carolina but we'll talk about that later um and they had a really good day the redcoats uh, just as a general um just in general just had one of their better days of performance that in the time that i've been around them since 2006 i've never seen the redcoats be that consistently good as they were just really really killed it all the way through dog walk sounded great sounded strong very mature dark sound the entire way through uh sounded great on the way into the stadium rock and ass pregame which we can talk more about in a second uh incredible show uh lots of fun stories that came out of that and then basically just played their asses off like all the way through the end of the um game and they were bombing choker just as well as they bombed choker at the beginning of the game uh during the last play of the fourth quarter so that was pretty awesome um pregame was nutsy we uh samantha came up top to do the battle him solo with me um because i don't know because she has a death wish because she hates heights so i knew <laughs> she was gonna hate it but she was gonna hate it less i guess her her logic was i think that she'd be less scared if i was up there and she knew i was up there and she wasn't then she'd think i was gonna die so I guess it was very, you know, yeah, it was actually sense. very selfless of her to go up there with me. So we went up there and I brought an extra, another spouse on staff, Alex, shout out to Alex, another uh, big man, another biggin like me. Uh, we went up there with a, the very talented Nick Borkovich, our battle him solos for the week. And we brought an extra, two extra people just to block people out of his way. Basically, it's kind of hard to tell from the bottom, but the battle him soloist actually performs at the bottom of like an aisle at the bottom of, of stairs. And you go down to the bottom of the stairs and you go to the first seat to the right and we perform from there. Uh, it used to be from the left, but there's a very sweet old couple who sits to the left of them and I didn't want to move them. So I just moved the place that we do it. So Nick goes down to the bottom of the stairs. We set him up and then a guy from athletics who was really, really great. Me, Alex, Samantha, and the sound guy just sit there and have to box out our battle home solos for like 15 minutes as people come through. And we're like, people are getting... Like most people were pretty nice, but some people were pretty irritated that they couldn't get to their seats, uh, which is like, come on, man, you're about to get hit to sit here and watch like, I don't know, one of the five or six greatest traditions in college football mm -hmm. happen like in your seats. Can you not just like give me a second? Mm -hmm. So the plan was I set up, I stood right beside where the battle him solo list was and I was just sort of like feeding him information like five minutes to go, you know, two minutes to go. Okay. They're on, they're coming on the field. And then when they were on the field, like, okay, you're going to do it just as planned. You don't have to do it early. Okay, you got about 10 seconds. And then with 10 seconds left, I sat down right behind him on the stairs and sort of like had one hand on the railing in front of me and one hand like kind of hovering over him in case anything happened because there were just a lot of people. 
And about five seconds before he goes to play, someone tries to get to their seats. <laughs> so that was the moment where I thought I was going to die. I didn't. So that I came through well. I mean, it was really never a problem. It was just like it, when you are very hyper focused on like no one is falling over the railing today on my watch. And then someone bumps into <laughs> you from behind. Even if it's not a problem, it like, you know, you, you're going to get your pants pretty quickly. I'm, I didn't literally shit my pants just for the record. Don't let that slander out there. Um, so, of course, Nick nails the battle him solo. The whole house is going like just about to fall down. I mean, it's it's so crazy. As soon as they hit Krypton and the lights turned off, it was just like in that moment walking around when they turned the lights off, we were we kind of sprinted down. We were like, OK, we're going to see this. We want to see this happen. So we, we sprint down and we get almost to the tunnel before they turn off the lights. And when they turned the lights off, we were just running into the tunnel and we just tur- it was like getting it was like it was a physical presence being inside of that stadium, walking from the concourse to the to the inside of the stadium, like like a, a visceral physical reaction to walking through that that tunnel. It was just absolutely. So, yeah, it was just this like really weird, powerful, visceral presence um, going in there and you know, we got up into the stands and it was just, I mean, we can talk about how the actual game went later, but mm-hmm. like there was, it was just like the, the flow of the game in the stands from the pl- playing wise was just really crazy. Cause it felt like we were just, we're just going to play on every play and during the big games. So and that's always the way the Redcoats do. So that was really stressful. It was awesome. They sounded great, but it was, it was just pretty much constantly giving them the downbeat of everything. Um, and then they did halftime and they pushed up onto the stands. If you didn't get to see it, uh, hopefully we can attach the YouTube video because I haven't, I don't think it's out yet. I don't think the YouTube video is out yet, but if you have not seen it, you should. They did a sing along show and at the very end. They pushed all the way up into the student section where they like just ran forward straight into the hedge um, and just played right into like where the paint line and the uh, spike squad were. And mm-hmm. we had, I had texted the spike squad from my uh, podcast account because for whatever reason they follow us. Um, I texted them like, Hey, don't leave the stands. And so they were right there and they loved it. And, um, that was like a really cool moment. It was just like a really powerful moment where the Redcoats got the, got the props that they always deserve, but got it this time in a real, very real way from the student section. I thought that was like a really, I don't know, like it was a really powerful moment for me as someone who's followed the Redcoats for a long time, uh, to see that the promise of what they can do for, they have been able to do for a long time, but have not done come through. And and a performance that was just not good by the standards of Redcoats, but good by the standards of basically any performing ensemble in the activity period. Um, And so that was just a really cool moment to be there for. I was very emotional. Like coming into the halftime, the band director was like, I'm not sure that I love that we're playing this show down three. Um, And to the student section and the north side stands uh, credit they really like sing along and we did this whole sing along show and then when we pushed up on the student section they just went totally freaking crazy so that was pretty awesome and i'm feeling like pretty emotional about it <laughs> oh but hey the actual best thing to happen my favorite story we're on the sideline for halftime and i look around and i'm like oh that's jerome bettis i turn around and the bus like jerome bettis the nfl hall of famer and i believe two-time super Bowl champion i can't remember He's just sitting there. You know, they have like the circle of chairs they use for like the O-line. He's just sitting in one of those with his family. Like he's just like really enjoying the show and kind of bopping along with it or whatever. And it was like, oh, man, that's super cool. Uh, I'm, I was going to walk over to the front of the hedges so I could conduct the band from the front. My thought being that like I'll get over there and I'll get in front of them and I'll get on like the opposite team bench. Mm-hmm. He only has one Super Bowl ring, by the way. Anyway, I'll get on the opposite team bench and... um. 
or the the home the away team bench and i'll just conduct from there so that everybody can see once they go past the drum major uh ladders and i did eventually but first as i walked over there i have this real visceral moment of insight where i'm like the band i i help staff is about to kill super bowl champion and nfl hall of famer jerome bettis whose work is a giant contribution to mankind and who i love dearly and so i had this moment of like panicked like i can't make this man who's stronger than me move so i just sort of have to flap my arms at him so i was like uh hey we're about to come right through here uh come on i respect your work so much don't let us kill you oh god just get no no god and so he kind of like pops out of the way and i'm like and i i'm just kind of like standing between him and the band so that nobody runs into him and he's just like, there's just waves of them. And I was like, yeah, I know. There's like 400 of them. And he's just like, I like it though. And I'm like, that's good. Please, you're, you're, you've made so many contributions to football kind. Please don't die. Not on my watch. Let's not kill Jerome Bettis. So uh, he survived. So that was good. Okay. Good. Um, yeah, no, just Jerome Bettis is alive. <laughs> the last time I saw him as of Saturday, he yeah. was very yeah. much alive. Um, you know, that is what I will say in the deposition too. Um, but I definitely, that was like, cool it's always cool to see people on the sidelines and in my experience if you just don't treat them like um if you just don't treat them like celebrities they just kind of are like yeah hey what up and Mm -hmm. it was kind of cool to like um i don't know just see them and get to interact with them even in like a panicked like hey you should probably go should probably move away um and so that was really neat yeah so it was like pretty much from beginning to end just a really incredible day and we can kind of transition into talking about the game mm-hmm. with this, which is that like I am not sure if Georgia wins this game without the crowd. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, and I'm not. I, I'm like, and I I want everyone. If you have never listened to the show before, as some background, I'm not a real subjective narrative person. But I said on the in, I said coming into this game, slap yourself because everyone needs to have their mind right because you know superstitions won't win games, but crowds can. And this is, and I said that sort of jokingly, but this is the one time that I've ever been in a game that I've I, I've ever had a just visceral feeling in the stadium that like, oh, we're we're winning this game because the crowd will not allow it to allow us to not win. Mm-hmm. And I was there for 2013 uh, LSU, and this was like this was a louder for longer environment. That LSU got that loud in the fourth quarter. This was that loud from the kick to the end. It was just a hundred percent ridiculous. I was going to say, let's try to take some some heat out of your hot take there, your subjective take, and, and kind of point to some stats that, that, that actually support that idea. So are there any stats that, that jump out to you immediately that kind of tell that story that you just you just shared? Well, Notre Dame had six false start penalties and burnt two of its timeouts in the third quarter. They went into their final drive when they needed to kill clock as, or when they needed to save as much clock as possible with only one, with only one timeout remaining. And just they never looked settled. Like, mm-hmm. and I don't mean like it, on the field, they look settled, but I mean, operationally, administratively, they never looked settled. There was a lot of like running out in the field by coaches and yelling at them. And there was a lot of uh, things that were not false starts, but clearly moments when the snap count had to be reset. There was a lot of like running up to the line and correcting the play right at the last minute. There was a lot of like frantic hand signals in the operation of the game from the standpoint of administration. Notre Dame was never settled the entire time. Mm-hmm. And 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 one of the things that I think was kind of laudatory about the performance from UJ's fans was not just how loud it got, but the shocking quiet of it when UGA had the ball. It was like really staggering to be in the stadium. And then like every time UGA would possess the ball again, 
it would just be it would be like you could hear people two sections over talking out of nowhere <laughs> it was really it was really unsettling actually it's, like you could hear like the coaches on the sideline yell pass <laughs> when uga had the ball so and then as soon as notre dame got the ball back it was immediately like yeah like just just a dull roar mm-hmm. um it's funny those six false starts i will i agree that you know it, it, it's definitely part of the crowd that that pushed a, a number of those false starts but i want to bring attention to uh there were a few times those false starts came off where the defense actually adjusted last minute just to try and pull some of those false starts oh, yeah, so the, i do want to talk the, about like, that yeah the stunts yeah yeah there were some stunts and there were some pulls and i want to know i, I want to say there's two from memory right this minute that i know for sure came from uga moving on the line like all four defensive players moving on the line which pulled some some false starts but the other four i can't speak for necessarily do you recall any of those uh well two of them were just i can i know two of them just like straight up were false starts like because uh whether or not they were crowd noise or not Mm -hmm. one of them was by way i think one of them was on claypool actually and then I, I can recall at least twice when it was clearly a false start based on crowd noise. Yeah. And I mean, I think what's more important than the penalties is the uh, the actual, just the the absolutely insane noise that caused the timeouts. Mm-hmm. The timeouts, like not having the timeouts going to the end of the game really affected the end of the game. For sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that comes from, you know, having to call timeouts because whatever is, you know, whatever the coaches are communicating from the, the sidelines or the press box are not getting to the players on the field necessarily Mm -hmm. and they're seeing something Mm -hmm. that they're not seeing on the field uh so let's look at the notre dame offensive stats actually and see if there's anything in there that tells us the same thing what do you say uh yeah sure so on the day notre dame had sort of a a weirdly uneven day they were very successful at certain things but they couldn't do it consistently and it was really a weird like from the outset this is really a bizarre game in terms of just flow and like and feeling in the moment but that is totally reflected by the stats the stats are a little bit like wacky you know yeah it, for it, sure it's a, it shows an it shows an even game but also just like there's a lot of stuff in this there's a lot of stuff in there in this um in this box score that is just like really really weird that like doesn't match up and like when you look at notre dame offensively in particular it's very odd Notre Dame, um, if we look at success rate by quarter, Notre Dame had a 44% success rate in quarter one. That's just about average, but UG had a 36% success rate. Very good. Okay. Then quarter two, Notre Dame has a 33% success rate and a 62% success rate from Georgia. The weird thing about that is you'll recall the game went to the half at 10-7. <laughs> so that shows that Notre Dame, despite its low success rate, was still playing close and playing good enough defense that they weren't allowing Georgia to convert those drives into um, into points. But then at, in quarter three, like we talked about how quarter three, you know, traditionally UGA has come out and made really good um, adjustments. In quarter three, UGA had a 50, 55% success rate and Notre Dame had an 11% success rate. So at that point, it feels like, and that kind of matches up to what we, you know, to what we experienced in the game where like it felt like UGA had the game put away and then they went back to being f- conservative uh that there's a rant coming on that um <laughs> and notre dame had a 52 percent success rate and Nord- and georgia had a 33 percent success rate in quarter four so just those success rate by quarter breaks are really interesting to me because they they paint the picture of a game that was not played under any sort of overriding logic strategically 
where like you had two different sides going at each other's weaknesses, adjusting to what was being gone, what was being gone after, and then adjusting again, and then adjusting again. And it feels to me like ultimately the best thing you can say about UGA's um, coaching job on the time or on the day is that you know they at the very least made the right adjustments until uh, Notre Dame ran out of adjustments. But at the but like to have a 40% success rate margin in in the third quarter and then still only win by 6 is actually kind of disappointing. <laughs> you know you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So like I I don't know, it's just really weird, man. So like Notre Dame only lost 3 per, Notre Dame had lost 3 uh points off a of turnover luck. So this, you know, S&P Plus or SP Plus would would probably treat this by about as about a 3-point game as opposed to a 6-point game. Mm-hmm. So that's weird. But then also, like, there are times when Notre Dame was just absolutely dominated. Like, passing success rate, Notre Dame had 54%. Uh, or, sorry, UGA had 54%. Notre Dame had 38%. Just that margin with from a team that likes to pass, this game should not have been this close, and yet it was. So it's just really weird, man. It was it's a weird really game. Hard to, it's really hard to analyze because I think a lot of the analysis that I have for you is like the second level analysis of the way the coaching decisions were made and, and sort of the like meta framing of the game of like the chess match of what each coaching uh, staff was trying to do to me is really the story here more than the actual performance on the day. Yeah. Which is just really bizarre. And, and you know, at the end of that though, Georgia had an 81% win, win expectancy. Yeah. You're, you're definitely right. When you say like, it was just a weird game. I didn't take a lot of notes on it just because I didn't have much of a reference point, to be honest, for either side, whether it was offense or defense. Like I just found myself a lot of the time looking at the screen going, huh. And like, for instance, like Ian Book didn't really seem to get a lot going on on the outside, even though he was passing a whole bunch. And that's where Claypool was most of the time. So I just felt like he did blow us up a few times, but it wasn't as much as I was well, necessarily I mean, expecting, you know? Yeah. I mean, in there... There, to me, there were two issues. One, Cole commit the the uh, tight end who is just a he is a, a, a monster, a, a damn monster of a man. A f- like I'm rarely physically intimidated by a human, but just seeing him like on the sideline before the game and seeing him walk out through the tunnel, I was like, who the f- is that? Like <laughs> that that is not the shape that a human should be. He just like he was <laughs> just like not the right. Well, he he was like built like a five foot ten bodybuilder, but he was six four. It was just, it did not make any sense. Like up close, it made even less sense. You know, he was coming back into this uh, into this game off of an injury, and I don't think that Georgia really prepared for his size very well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think one of the big strategic things on the day was that we were just getting carved up by commit a lot of the times. The other big thing, and you know what, I'm gonna eat crow. My and many, many other people's projections about this game were wrong, and I will point out, many, many other people were also wrong about this game. And I think that, I think it was because my sort of starting premise is that Notre Dame would not be able to stop UGA's run game. And to their credit, through most of the game, they managed to do that. They sure did. UGA UGA only had a 42% rushing uh, success rate on the day. The average on the year is 41%. So if you can hold a if you can hold a team that just wants to run the ball under the national average or just above or around the national average for running the ball, then like you're going to have a pretty good chance of winning. But, you know, even having said that there were some individual good, na- good uh, numbers on the day. Right. I mean, Brian Harrion on eight carries had a 50% success rate. Um, DeAndre Swift still averaged 4.69 highlight yards per opportunity. 
Like they broke off some good runs. They looked good. I mean, 18 for 98 for 5.5 yards per carry, 3.36 line yards per carry from DeAndre Swift. That is a very good day. It's just like average and not world beating. Hmm. And so, you know, Notre Dame did an effective job of game planning around the run. They brought, you know, 10 men sometimes into the box. Um, it seemed like and or eight or nine at the very least. And UGA at, in the first half of the game in particular, I think, did a very poor job of capitalizing where there were not men. I talked about when we had this, uh, I think I talked about in the Blutarski episode that, you know, if you can make a team focus on what you are good at and then counterpunch off of that and throw to where there are no defenders, a lot of the times, even if you're doing something that you're not very good at, you can get a you can get a high margin of efficiency off of that, right? So I was surprised, and I guess this has to do with the quality of Notre Dame's secondary. I was surprised that we weren't willing to test their secondary and safeties over the middle more often. Because a lot of the times at the snap, the inside linebackers and the safeties were running downhill. Um on the one hand, it's hard to be critical because that choice to not do that came with some like trade-offs, right? And certainly some of them ended up working out because we ran the ball way better in the second half. But deciding not to do that just felt like a waste of explosive potential to me. You know, you only have to hit like a, a short slant coming off of the coming off of one of those run blitzes once or twice for those run blitzes to stop. Hmm. And 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 that's what's weird to me is that like that play was there all game and even though that play was there even though Notre Dame has a very good secondary. You know what I mean? And so I just I don't know why we didn't try to challenge them more. I understand like the answer is because Kirby is trying to coach like Nick Saban from 2011. Mm-hmm. And that's fine so insofar as it goes, but you know I think this was a game that we thought that we could just out talent the other team and when we couldn't, we made some adjustments at halftime and then we put the game away cuz we did have more talent. If we do that against Alabama, it won't matter because we'll be down by like 21 at half at the half instead of three. Yeah. Right. So that that is my concern. My biggest concern, my biggest takeaway from this game is not really how talented is UGA, still otherworldly talented. You know, what is their ceiling? A CFP berth and possibly national champions. The you know, just as, that's just the product on the field. My mm-hmm. question is more like, is this a coaching staff that is prepared to do what it takes to win the national championship? Because in a day and age where Clemson is just going to want you to score 35 points to beat them. Oklahoma wants you to score 50 points to beat them. Even, I mean, hell, even Alabama wants you to score like 35 points to beat them. You cannot, you do not have the luxury of thinking that it's going to just be like, we can run inside zone and then bash like 10 times and then have some like end arounds to one of our slower wide receivers. And that's going to work. Right. And I know that UGA's coaches know that, but I also just, I fear that the idea of like, okay, we're going to win on the margins. We're going to play good defense. We're not going to turn it over. We're going to run the ball. Okay. That's all well and good. But what happens when you can't do those things, right? That's my fear. Last year we showed categorically that UGA at times was not prepared, did not have a plan of attack when they couldn't run the ball. I don't know what our path forward here is. If that happens again, Right. I mean, in it's very possible that with the talent that it has on on the board that this UGA team can win 12, 11 games without ever being anything more than just, you know, the most conservative 2009 Alabama team possible. But I don't know what it does to their ceiling. Hmm. Sorry, I went ham there. No, you didn't. It was good. It was almost a bummer. Like it, it, it veered like almost like Icarus towards the sun 
on the bummer train, but it was good. I think it was a very good break check almost. And it's good to, to sit here and say like, these are our yeah, weaknesses. I mean, yeah. Yeah. And, and so it's like, okay, so it's, it's not even like a weakness. It's mm. just like, you have to be able to say in a clear headed way, this is what I like to do from a philosophical standpoint. Sometimes I can't do that because the other team is better or I'm not well prepared or because I have a rash of injuries, which low key UGA is dealing with a rash of injuries. Yeah, to me, sure. the most damning statistic from this game is to look at the unfiltered without, well, there was no, there was no garbage time on the day, but the unfiltered uh, success rate data by, by standard and passing downs is kind of damning Yeah, because if you look at the differentials between UGA and Notre Dame's offense on standard down, Notre or UGA basically was outperformed on in every category by on standard downs. Mm-hmm. Right? So like to me what that says is that this is a team that wants to do well on standard downs that just got beat at its own game, right? And we won because we basically outperformed Notre Dame at every major uh, category on passing downs. And it's not that I don't think we can do that, it's that I wish that the coaches understood that we can do that. Yeah. Right. I'm not asking them to throw it 35 times a game. I'm just saying there's no reason to not use the strengths that you have. Right. You have in, you have, I would say, I really do think that, you know, Jake Fromm is in many ways a once in a generation quarterback. It, it does not make sense to not employ him at his highest level of efficiency, which is certainly doing more than he did last time or Saturday night. You know, I mean, and if you look at like, Jake Fromm just flat out outplayed Ian Book. 100%. Right? Yeah. I mean, across the line. 20 for 26, 187 yards, 77% completion rating, 54, 54% success rating, and 23% explosive rating. That is a that is not right. He didn't throw enough to have like a Heisman worthy line. He didn't have enough yards to like scare anyone. But when you can throw 77%, when you complete 77% of your passes against that quarter cornerbacking core, you you should be you should get more usage than 26 passes that's mm-hmm. all i'm saying right and and yeah certainly the numbers go down if he has more more passes but i just i thought we came out of the third we came out of the third quarter and we were like you know what we're just gonna let jake Fromm be jake Fromm, and he's just gonna get out there and do the central georgia thing and he's gonna sling his ass around there and just complete some very into some very tight windows and we're gonna win the game and when that when we came out and did that, I was like, hell yes, this is what Jake Crumb does, man. He he comes from an air raid passing tree. He knows how to run the quick tempo offense and he can throw across the middle really accurately. And then we just were like, okay, we're up by, you know, 10. Let's just stop. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, but why? Yeah. Right? I mean, Jake Fromm has yet to throw knock on wood, Jake Fromm <laughs> has yet to throw an interception this year. I mean, at some point you gotta just say, Fuck it, let's be legends. I, I don't know when we're going to get to that point. And here's the thing. I, I really do. I mean, all joking aside, I really do think that at some point, every football team has to do the thing where there's like, well, we're just going to crack open a pack of natty lights and we're going <laughs> wick- to we're going to get fucking rip wild and we're just going to see what can happens. And that is exactly what UGA did when they almost beat Alabama It's exactly what they did when they beat Oklahoma. Right. My, my concern is that is not a switch that you can flip at the end of the season in the college football playoff. You got to practice that. That that's my concern. That's true. What the stats tell me, one of my takeaways, this was a very conservative game from start to finish. Like looking at standard downs, you just talked about how we got beat on every single metric. One of the metrics that is most concerning to me is that our explosive rate is 0% on standard downs. And on passing downs, it's just 17%. And I think a lot of that comes from that third quarter, which unfortunately our, our, you know, our, our 
stats are not broken down right now by uh, quarters. It's broken down by the whole game on downs and, and yada, yada, yada. So the, the, the explosive rate on passing downs is really the only place we had any kind of explosive plays and, and anything going on at all. And it was only in passing. There were no expla- uh, explosive rushes the entire day. And that is concerning yeah. from trying to decipher as to whether that was play calling or really was Notre Dame playing lights out. And that, I believe, is one of our questions later on is just, was this really great Notre Dame play or was this poor Georgia play? And I don't want to say it's poor Georgia play because I, I would never want to blame the players first. I would want to look at what the scheme looked like. So what do you kind of, what are you thinking? Well, I mean, ultimately, I think that that Notre Dame had a really good plan. Mm-hmm. You got to give the credit where credit is due. Notre Dame planned really well. Notre Dame had a really good idea for what that, for what they wanted the game to look like. And they came out in the first quarter and they did it, you know? And so it's hard to really, it's hard to critique them too. It's hard to it's hard to be too hard on Georgia because on the one hand, sometimes the other the other team has a game plan that just works, right? So so it's hard for me to say like, oh, this team sucks. Oh, we're overrated. I don't think that's true. My my bigger concern is that when a team comes out and has a better game plan than you or has a game plan that addresses what you can do really well, then you have to counterpunch quicker. You have to be quicker about making adjustments. It was clear from the opening offensive possession that Notre Dame was going to keep nine in the box all day. 2011 Alabama's offensive line cannot run against nine in the box. Not with any consistency, right? So I don't think that it's necessarily that UGA got outplayed. It's that we got initially out adjusted, Mm -hmm. right? And so you have to think about, I think, what are we going to do when a team who has more talent than Notre Dame, which we are going to play some, does that to us? Right. That that's the that's my bigger existential question. I think that UGA in the in the short term, like you should feel happy about the fact that UGA went in here against a very well prepared prepared team who it seems deserved to be in the top ten. And, you know, put the game away. Bo constricted them to death. Like there's something to be said for doing that, right? And a lot of that came from, you know, just having very good talent and incredible depth, right? And we t- we've talked all off season about how you cannot overstate how deep this team is. You cannot overstate how talented this team is. This is a different kind of team than a team that even two years ago, uh, Kirby Smart could field. And I think that one of the positive takeaways from the day was that this is a proof of concept that that is true, right? UGA two years ago, UGA three years ago, UGA under Mark Richt cannot lose both of its starting quarterbacks, its starting right tackle. And it's like, probably most important wide receiver at not a hundred percent health and win a game against a top 10 team you know and we did we we won a game with a guy starting at star who had never started before we won a game with a juco transfer starting at one of the cornerback spots and a senior who's gotten passed on the depth chart because he's not talented enough starting at the other right and so that speaks to a kind of depth that we have never had at this university period full stop so if there's anything you should feel good about, it's that, right? I'm not worried about how talented this team is. I just, I, I need to know that Kirby is playing 4D chess here, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> if we, if we're, st- if we're still leaving things in the tank, it, I mean, look, every one of Kirby's decisions makes sense if you are looking at it from the perspective of, I think I can win this game without being the best team that I can be. I think I can win this game without rev- without playing all my cards. I think I can win this game by just doing the very shallowest things in our offensive playbook and putting like some orbit motions on it and basically just running the stuff that we've been seeing all year and being conservative. If if you approach 
Kirby's decision matrix with those thoughts in mind, the decisions he made made perfect sense, right? And if that's the case, I'm fine with it, right? It's just, we don't know if that's true until it happens, right? And so that that's kind of what has me concerned. One more observation I want to share and get your feedback on is uh, something that I kind of noticed throughout the game is that this might be a From thing, this might be a Coley thing, this might be a uh, whatever thing, it might be nothing. But something that I, I noticed over the game is that we tend to target players in back-to-back plays and it happens pretty successfully. Like it happened with Robertson, Simmons, Blaylock, and it's it's always kind of happened on the running backs, but that I felt like that was more typical of running backs. Again. Yeah, riding the hot hand. Yeah. yeah. So is that something that is more of a personality thing for uga or do you think that's a new coley thing or a from thing or Uh, i mean i I think that's just a i think that's just a kirby kind of smells blood and and they come out and they think you know what we have a mismatch on robertson we're going to go to it until we stop i don't Mm -hmm. have really a problem with that i don't know that it's necessarily a uga thing i think it's just a thing that football teams do Mm -hmm. my problem was more the like kind of weird play calls at weird times right you're running the ball really well and then you put the ball in a sweet motion in matt lander's hands on an end around and it's not that Matt Landers isn't talented, like not Matt Landers, um, Lawrence Cager's hands. Mm-hmm. It's not, and it's not that Cager's not talented. I mean, he basically won the game with his touchdown catch. It's that it, it's hard. It, it's like, is that the best use of him? Right? Why? Why isn't that James Cook? You know, why isn't that the dude with like actual legit, like you know, uh, world re- or you know, national record speed in the hundred meter? Why isn't that? I don't know. Uh, even Dominic Blaylock kind of makes more sense, right? So I, that's the thing that kind of confused me was not, it wasn't like who we were calling plays to. It was like the kinds of calls that each player was getting now. And this all is me probably being hypercritical because there was a lot of things that worked. First off, Jake Fromm is the man. <laughs> Second, we managed to have a halfway decent run game against a team that was going to put 10 and bo- 10 and nine in the box the entire game. Right. I mean, so Ultimately, the fact that this plan that I don't think was incredibly efficient worked is good news because it means that UJ can pretty much play the game it wants to against most people in the nation, right? So if you're asking me, does this game leave me thinking more or less that we'll go to the SEC championship, it's more. But if you're asking me, does it make me think that it will more or less win the SEC championship, it might be less. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And, and and that has a lot more to do with coaching than it does to do with player development or talent or whatever it's just like if we're going to beat alabama we're going to have to we're going to have to score 45 points Mm -hmm. like that's just almost certainly true with tua at the helm of that offense and jerry judy and all of the talent at running back and all the talent behind judy and you know an offensive line that is not you know as good as it has been but still very 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 good so like maybe we still have that in the tank we might still have another gear i don't know Right, Clemson has kind of made a bre- its bread and butter with playing with its food and then deciding to sc- you know win by fifty points when they have to. Maybe that's where UGA is, and it might be that we go against you know two bad teams in Tennessee and South Carolina, and we sort of erase them from the face of the earth, and we're not having this conversation anymore. I just, I'm a little. It's just like at some point in 2010. Um, well, sorry, in 2009, I think it was uh, Nick Saban gets just absolutely blown out in the sugar bowl right uh it was the game that he played i think utah and after that game i think he just became a little bit less conservative 
and we slowly see the you know the adoption of Lane Kiffin as the offensive of the, as the offensive coordinator and sort of the explosion of the sort of Alabama uh, death the Alabama death spread that we have now. The fact of the matter is that like that is the way football is going, and maybe it'll zag back to what UGA does now. But if you are not willing to get into a track meet with some teams, you're just going to lose. Mm-hmm. So that's my that's my concern. Yeah. Not that I think UGA is bad or that I want to like rain on anyone's parade. It was an amazing, it was an amazing day with an amazing, amazing. It was you know an amazing performance from the team and the players, and it was good adjustments from the staff all the way through. It's just like if we are at a point where this team needs to go to the national championship, what adjustments do we need to make? Yeah. Uh, before we get into prediction review, are there any other big takeaways you want to add? Um, I mean, the refing was god awful. <laughs> it sure was. I think there is a question down below about it as well. Okay, we. I, I have some very specific, like theories and mm-hmm. concepts and ideas about why the refing was so awful that I would like to talk about. So yeah, I hope that I'll have time to air my grievances. I think you will. You always have okay time to air your grievances with me. Okay, cool. <laughs> so prediction reviews. Uh, the very first one is over under for hot rod 10 points in the day uh you said under he hit 11 points i said even so that's a wrong on both of us actually but good on you hot rod you got your points over under one and a half nolan smith havoc plays he actually ended up with none on the day and we both said over uh they did a pretty good job of containing nolan smith actually well he had a quarterback curry but that's not in our stats yeah it was still it was still under Uh uh-huh um over under notre dame havoc plays eight and a half uh it's actually over uh yeah. they had i want to say 10 total I, I know it's nine for sure but i think there was one more it was that... like jr reed had four pass breakups on his own mm-hmm. which is pretty sexy yeah mm-hmm. he did he had an awesome day he had a fantastic day and uh the end of the game to kind of just like ride our coattails out or ride jr reed's coattails out is kind of what the team did uh on that very last interception play your over under your very first one was ian book rushing touchdowns one and a half we both said under we felt like they would be able to contain him and they did but he tried to beat us with his arm which is pretty pretty interesting uh and your second over under to kind of play back and reference your first one was 0.5 claypool touchdowns you said over he did come back with one it and i said under so you took that one he probably shouldn't have had that one it wasn't thrown to him so Mm-mm. that was sort of a, a bs way for me to cover eh, on that it play. Is what it is you get your points predictions for the total score uh the game total was 23 to 17 my prediction was 30 20 yours was 42 21 uh the senator said 37 20 or 31 14 he was like ah whatever uh, so i covered on that one i got that one only yeah that was that was an difference. embarrassing prediction on my on my part i just thought there would be a lot more scoring in i the did game. that last week so i feel you <laughs> no, i think i did it for the vanderbilt game not last week yeah it happens but i gotta come back because i know i'm losing on the season as far as predictions go so Got to start getting smarter. And our next segment, Nathan, our favorite segment, Ask CBC. If you want to hear your questions on the show, you're always welcome to send them to us with either an hashtag AskCBC. You can email us at chapelbellcurve at gmail.com, Facebook one of us, or just send us, you know, smoke signals or just yell it at Nathan. Maybe he'll answer if he hears you, if you see him at one of the games. But our very first one comes from Kat at Kmart 4. Can someone tell me what a human eraser is? I am sure Kirby knows what he's talking about when he says at J.R. Reed is one. But if someone could provide a definition and or use it in a sentence, that'd be much appreciated. Perhaps, you know, Chapel Bell Curve. And I think this is a great question for an English teacher, Nathan. What a human eraser is? Yep. Use well, it in a I sentence mean, that, as well. That term, That's really what I want you to do. Yeah. That term usually comes about when you have like someone who's just really, really good in coverage 
which Jared Reed being probably the fastest safety uh, prospect in this year's NFL draft definitely is. So to use that in, you would just use it in like a simile format, right? You would use it with a helping verb, um, which you can identify a neat trick. If you're trying to identify a helping verb or most to be verbs is to uh, just replace it with an equal sign and it'll usually work. Right. So J.R. Reed is a human eraser. Um, that's called a, su- that's called a subject compliment. If you were wondering, it's a noun that renames the subject of a sentence. It's, it is sort of the basis of metaphorical language. Um, anyway, next question comes from PB York. What did you think of those injuries from Notre Dame? I was willing to give those players the benefit of the doubt, but believe it, or I believe I am in the minority. So there were two, two injuries and I'm using my quote fingers, uh, that everyone's talking about. And I'm using my quote fingers for everyone's talking about as well, but that seems to be everything or anything anyone can talk about at this point. So being there, what did you see and how did you feel about it? I thought there was a lot of things that went on in the flow of the game that seemed more obvious to me having been there than it seems like people are talking about them. From what I saw, it seemed to me that they were very obviously fake injuries. I don't think that the TV does a very good job of capturing how fast Georgia was going at that moment. And every time Georgia went that fast, they had an injury. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying that they were faking injuries. I'm just saying that we can't prove that they weren't. Mm -hmm. And that causation does not imply causality, but causation certainly like wiggles its eyebrows at causality. (laughs) And I think that's what's happening here. It was definitely odd. And so like, like, you know, in the same way that we all generally speaking can admit that like most division one college football teams pay their players. I can't tell, I can't, I can't prove that Brian Kelly was having his players fake cramps in order to avoid UGA's up-tempo spread. But I do certainly think that it is true. The case crab Stevens. It seemed to me that there were screen and crossing route coverage was very spotty at many times during the game. Is this a faulty take or did you also see this? Yes, I did. I think a lot of that has to do with the targets involved, right? When you have Cole commit on anyone, it's kind of a bad matchup. And I think also that UGA was intentionally choosing to play him soft over the middle in order to keep him from getting a big a big gain. Having said that, he still did that. So I don't know if we should have just played more man up on him. There were a couple of times in the game where we decided to just like see if their guys could beat ours and they pretty much couldn't. And then in the fourth quarter, I think a lot of their... I think a lot of their, you know, success came from the fact that we de- we decided to play soft man again, and we were giving him like ten yards off the line of scrimmage, which meant he could just catch a ten yard stick route basically on every play. So I don't know. I mean, yes, that is a concern because I do think that the biggest weakness of this defense is um, talent wise the inside linebacker core. And yes, Tay Crowder had a great game, and he, you know, seemed to look he looked really good for a lot of this game. But I do wonder how much playing time he gets if Nicobe Dean is not a freshman, right? And it did feel like the entire day that they were very focused on, like, hiding freshman mistakes, right? Even mm-hmm. though the biggest mistake of the game was committed by a senior, I will point out. It sure um, was. Yeah, so I, it, it's kind of weird. It's kind of weird to me. So I I, I think a lot of that, that, that soft coverage was, uh, you know, schematic. But I do also wonder about the talent at inside linebacker. Hmm. Next question comes from Irk Russell. Did Lee Corso make it out of Athens alive after calling Ugga ugly for a second time? Uh, yes. <laughs> because 
I know this because he he held the band up trying to get onto the field at halftime because he was trying to come off the field. So yep. He was definitely alive at some point after the first half. This is the second person you've referenced as, I know they were alive at this point. <laughs> well, listen, I don't want to be, I don't want to perjure myself. Yep. That's fair. I, look, here's the thing. Nobody needs to kill Lee Corso. He's bad at his job. That's its own revenge. <laughs> Living well, yeah, the, you, the best revenge is your paper, right? Mm-hmm. And we don't have to prove that you, that Ugga is a beautiful doggy and the best boy. He just objectively is. So like in the same way that I'm not going to argue with a flat earther, I don't need to argue with Lee Corso when he says that you that Ugga is ugly. Crab Stevens, was the game poorly played by UGA or was Notre Dame a better opponent than we imagined? Or is this just what top 10 football looks like? So since we've already answered the first question, you can kind of spend more time, I think, answering the second. Is this is what top 10 football looks like? No. <laughs> and I think this was a this was not necessarily a poorly played game from uh, UGA, but it was a poorly uh, schemed one. I think in many ways, mm-hmm. floppy four fifty four. Given their success rate and conversion rate, can you give your best guess at the impact the crowd had on the score? As in, how many of their drives would have ended differently, assuming they didn't fall start? Doesn't have to be super accurate. Just thought it'd be a fun way to speculate. I think that at least they get six points off of those drives. Yeah. Like I think I think we I think we at least took six points off of them with false starts penalties. Mm-hmm. And I think they get their their timeouts later in the game, which could have really changed the the momentum for them, especially. Uh, it may have changed their play calling yeah. later in the game, and they might have gone for lesser plays. But I think that it would have given them like I did start to sweat a little bit near the end of the game because they were picking up a lot of momentum, and it seemed like we were slowing down in a lot of ways. And so it it definitely could have changed, especially with six false starts. I think a few of those were very intentional by UGA's defense, but the rest were a lot of crowd. And yeah, like you said, like that could have been six points. It could have been uh, two more timeouts in the fourth quarter, which could have led to another three points. And that could have win, went to a Notre Dame win. You know, there, there's so many things that could have mm-hmm. happened. And I think, like you said, without the crowd, this is a very different game. Yeah, I, I definitely do. I, I don't think UGA wins this game in a neutral field. If if this game was played exactly as it was played, which I think in a neutral field, uh, UGA probably would have been more prepared in different ways. But I I just I don't think that this was a. I think the the crowd had a palpable effect on the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, stage manager for, manager for life. Do you think the ACC Abby. refs? Yes, this is Abby. Do you think the ACC refs were good, or do you think some SEC refs would have been better and made better calls? Okay, do it, do it. You can hear me shift forward. <laughs> yes, you can. The problem with the refing in this game is that it was not that it was poorly refed. There were bad calls. There was inconsistent refing in terms of what is a pass interference call. And those are things that I wish had gone better and I think could have been a blowout if they had. But the biggest problem with the refing in this game was the administration of the game. There's a couple of like small things that really bothered me. I have done some refing in the past at the very lowest levels of high school and like intramural sports or whatever. So I'm not planning i'm not claiming to be a rules expert or a refing expert but i do sort of understand how the ref should be on the field so the first thing is administratively the white hat the 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 ref wearing the white hat who is is positioned behind the quarterback through uh five to six yards behind him is the head ref on the field he's usually the most experienced ref and he's the ref that does the all the talking on mic i this was a really bad performance from this white hat he had a really hard time um, adjudicating calls within his own referee core. There was a lot of questioning. There was a lot of back and forth. 
on some really straightforward like is this a false start or an offsides kind of calls that are really weird like generally speaking most uh most white hats especially if they're working with a crew they trust it'll just be like okay who's the call on and if it's a non-judgment thing you just say oh okay it's 65 red false start and then he says false start on the offense 65 right and then you move on right and so in the in between the commercial times when they were you know they were doing they were having their little refs meeting during the um during the the tv timeouts even those looked a little more fractious than they should have not like anybody was arguing but there was just more conversation than there should have been um also i think he had he was really bad on the mic uh and that doesn't really matter but it's something that refs have been trained to do so he should have been better um also just the way timeout reviews were handled showed that there wasn't a clear set of communication guidelines coming from the box down to the field most experienced refs will stop a game if they know a uh if they suspect that a review is coming uh even if you're waiting for a, a review confirmation you still need to be in the right correct position to stop a game and there were a couple of times when the head ref had to run all the way up to the center to stop the game so just like administratively it was super sloppy and, and unprofessional i thought personally um, I also thought that, you know, so on a play, on any given play, the head ref's responsibility, his sort of like what he's adjudicating is generally speaking, everything between the center and the quarterback and anything in between the guards. Now, that's not always true. So d- ref experts don't at me. But generally <laughs> speaking, you want the head ref to be the one who is calling a lot of times the late hit penalties or calling the targeting penalties against the quarterback, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And you also want to see a good head ref occasionally call an interior holding call just because that's his, his, if, if his eyes are in the right place, he's going to see those. And yes, most holding calls are the purview of the line judge, but a good head ref will get that sometimes. And there were just two or three times when the head ref had a blatant hold happen in his box in his area of responsibility and did nothing about it and these were not like oh every play on football has holding these were like someone's jersey is getting ripped up and it's happening in front of you and my problem with nat that is not that he's a bad ref or that he's doing bad refing it's that it's just unprofessional professionally speaking like if if you are the most experienced ref on the field like you have to make that call right like if if jordan davis is just getting mugged on a sliding pocket which he was and you see his hand go up and you see someone grab jersey you just pull the flag right i mean and yeah you want to you want to focus your attention on the quarterback because you want to look for a late hit and you want to look for an eligible receiver downfield and you want to look for you know uh illegal pass and you want to look for intentional grounding and all that crap but your line of sight is on the guards is on the playset guard pretty much every time especially if you have set up against the play like if you've been lucky enough to set up on the opposite side from the way the play moves you should be looking at the playside guard the entire time i i just i don't know how you miss calls like that and it is it, just like the little things bother me more than the offensive line call the the pass interference calls which weren't called like okay three or four times notre dame threw an rpo they hit one to commit over in the side over on the edge on like a little comebacker and then they hit another one on an out and when he caught the ball there was an offensive lineman downfield past him like you have to catch that 
and that's not the head that's not the head refs that's not the head refs problem that's like the probably the umpire who is like the new like middle linebacker ref or like at, le- at the very least the the uh, back judge right but after you see that happen the first time as a head ref and not get called it's your job to spot it and then go to your back judge at a timeout and say like hey you have to watch for illegal uh, ineligible receiver downfield like i it, it boggles the mind the lack of communication anyway that's my <laughs> refing rant that was way more informed than I bet any of you thought. <laughs> it was very good. <laughs> uh, Alan Ivoroni, not sure if it's too late, but two questions. One, it's not too late also. One, if Simmons doesn't muff that punt, is this game a blowout? You think so? I, I, like, I 100%, yes, 100%. If this game goes to the half at 10 nothing and UGA comes out and does the boa constrictor thing that it wants to do, I'm, I'm, I'm so confident that this game is, if not a blowout, at least like a 17-point game. Like a more like a maybe twenty four six or twenty four ten or yeah twenty four ten yeah something like that mm-hmm. yeah I'm I'm very I feel I feel supremely confident that that is the case yeah okay uh, two I think Smart should have gone for it on fourth should he have and assuming he should have does this raise yet another question about Smart's late game play calling yes we talked about that already for yeah. the second part mm-hmm. goes- for the first part it's not the decision I would have made and I don't think it's the decisions the numbers would tell you to make. There is, it is a rational decision to make for a couple of reasons, right? However, it is like the ultimate sunk cost fallacy decision in the sense that like you're worried about getting something out of all of the effort that you've put into this drive, right? When really what you should be worrying about is getting the maximum out of the effort that you put into the drive, right? And so that kind of sort of uh, farmer and the farmer expecting a drought thinking has really been a problem for a lot of football coaches over the years but it's one of those things where there's not a an appreciable difference between that being a six-point game and a nine-point game <laughs> you still lose on two touchdowns or 13-point game or whatever it was. Yeah. nine i what yeah nine or 13 <laughs> or whatever it was there was no like regardless of whether or not you didn't get the fourth down or if you got the um or if you got the field goal, it was still a two touchdown game and it, it made no sense, right? They were still going to need to score two touchdowns to beat you. So there was really no stress. Like the way I think about it usually is like, does this decision cause the other team to change its strategy? Mm-hmm. If UGA burns another 30 seconds off the clock there and gets the first down, it radically alters Notre Dame's strategy. If they don't get the first down, then Notre Dame has the same strategy as if they score the field goal. But, right so yeah so what's the difference like you know like literally you sacrificed marginal efficiency by simply choosing not to do the thing that puts more pressure on the opposing defense mm-hmm. and they were already running explosive passes down the sidelines like they, we were go- we were getting beat there um and so it wouldn't like the and the reason why i bring that up is because if we were to go up further by getting a first town to run the clock down further they would have just been riskier on their passes which yeah they could have beat us which more. we'd already picked them twice yeah exactly so it may have been more or less the same thing that, that that came out on the end but it is what it is yeah ultimately it's a defensible decision but it's not one i would have made mm-hmm. uh andy tabling is there an analytics analytics driven response to whether or not it was a mistake to kick the field goal instead or go for it late in the fourth emotionally i am and was very opposed that, to that decision but wondering if numbers alter that perspective so this is just kind of an addendum essentially to the last one I mean, I guess I would just repeat my yeah. same answer. Mm-hmm. 
I do want to say Andy Tabling is, I think, the brother of one of the UGA drum majors who is an amazing human. And so I assume you are also an amazing human, sir. Carry on. And now we'll get to our very, very favorite segment is the Dr. James Bearfield Troll Corner presented by Cheerwine. It's the wine that gives you diabetes, TM, TM, TM. And a mainstay question that has already shown up in the last few episodes is what comic battle would you equate to the Notre Dame game and why? Amazing Spider-Man number 33, the end of the Master Planner series <laughs> in which Spider-Man finds himself trapped under a ton of uh, laboratory equipment dropped on him by the Master Planner. In this very, uh, very probably the greatest episode of mm-hmm. Spider-Man, or I always say episode, the greatest issue of Spider-Man ever penned by Steve Ditko, I would definitely say. Mm-hmm. Um, this I is think one of the most iconic. Best, Easily. Yeah, best best uh comic book ever but in that he has this whole thing about like just because you're coming from behind doesn't mean that you can't win and he like psychs himself up and he like gets up and he was really he had the power the entire time which i would say like his his internal voice is the uga fan base uh you may actually remember folks that are listening if you've seen if you haven't read any spider-man but you've watched the uh homecoming episode or episode the homecoming movie it's the same scene when Spider-Man's trapped under a bunch of rubble after his big fight with the vulture. The vulture. And he has to yeah. get out of there. It's the same exact thing. Um, maybe not exact, but it, it's it, that scene is referencing this in the comic. The next one, how would you equate the Mapimba effect to the offense of this game? <laughs> to the offenses. This is actually for all of the offenses. The Mapimba effect is this thing that we had to look up, full disclosure. Uh <laughs> Where it is, some people think that ice uh, ice freezes quicker. Water turns into ice quicker when it's hotter. How would I equate that? I think because, I think it kind of is because this game was all about things not making sense. Mm-hmm. And in doing things that can't really be totally proven, um, which is was a lot of this game. Like, it just feels like it's right. So, yeah, it's true. <laughs> uh, why, while the fake injury thing was annoying... If it is as effective as a timeout, but doesn't cost one, why don't we see it more often? Um, because it's a thing to do that people with personalities and ethics do. <laughs> if only they worked for a football. If only they worked for a university that had a very strict moral code. Uh, number four is run good. Um, yeah, run okay. <laughs> run just fine, I guess. Could run better, but run good. Which offensive and defensive yeah. players need the most attention over the bye week? Uh, well, I would say the injured one, Eric Stokes in particular, needs to come back, get well soon, Eric. I would say in terms of like people who need attention, like need to definitely work on the young inside linebackers because they need to get on the field. Hey, I, I just got a under the wire ask CBC that actually came straight from our friends at Waiting Since last Saturday. Are you ready for it? Yeah. Um, how about analyzing what Notre Dame's chances were of scoring the go-ahead touchdown after that shorty punt gift on their last position possession? Okay, so if you start on the opponent's 40, you get about three points per drive. Where did they start? Give me a second. First and 10 at the Notre Dame 48. Mm-hmm. So when the team starts at the uh, opponent's 40, they have about three points per drive. 48 cannot be cha- cannot change your expected points per drive by much. So... I got to think that it was still about even starting from the 48. It was still just over a 50, 50 shot, probably slightly below 50, 50 for Notre Dame's odds in the context of the game, given that Notre Dame on the day was at that point, averaging a 
passing downs. And let's just assume that every down on this drive is a passing down because of the time involved. So given that Notre Dame on the day was uh, averaging a pass success rate on passing downs of about 25%, which is 16% under the 41% average on the year, um, I got to think that it's pretty low. Mm -hmm. I think it's probably even with good field position, probably still right around 50%. Additionally, given that uh, Notre Dame on the day had only managed to amass 13% of uh, their passing plays as explosive passes of over 13 yards, I don't think it's... I still think it's probably slightly under 50%. One additional part to their question uh, is what about some stat casting on if they had a full complement of timeouts for that last possession? Which would have been terrifying. Yeah, which would have um, been terrifying. Uh, that's like almost impossible to stats cast because of the, the variables involved. Mm-hmm. I still think that that puts them probably about at 60%. It is difficult when you had the statistical game that they've had to put down. When when the game ends 26-17 or whatever it ended, it's difficult to put together <laughs> a sustained drive over i don't it does the final score yeah, doesn't no, really matter keep... to me i know i know <laughs> I it was know. a six I, I know it was a six point game it really doesn't matter yeah. i know that we were in the 20s they were in the teens it doesn't matter mm. all right when you're down six and you haven't had a lot of uh, success on passing downs and you have a short amount of time it may be that having an extra timeout allows you to set up another play so maybe you don't get to fourth down as quickly yeah. But ultimately, the deciding play of the game was just UGA having better players. UGA is going to have its third down package out that entire drive, no matter what. Yeah, and just and despite the lack of sacks on the day, it, you know, watching rewatching the game, UGA pretty much owned um, Notre Dame in that third down package on the offensive line. So you got to think we probably get pressure still. So I think it it might up their percentage to above 50-50, but I still feel pretty good about UGA in that system in mm-hmm. that sense in that moment. I mean, they got the ball back on their 48 with they had a minute 51 left. With one with no timeouts, right? Yeah. And this is so breaking down even further too is like most of these you had first, second down, first down, second down, then they get a third and fourth. But the problem is at this point in the game they had Georgia had begun shutting down Comet pretty effectively. And yeah, you know that just because of these six plays Notre Dame ran on this last drive, four of them were targeted towards Claypool. So they were just going for gold. Like they were trying to hit it because they knew that they didn't have enough time left. Um, they were just trying to get the points and go uh, as the time was running out. And so I don't think Claypool was as effective today. And the numbers show that too, just because they were passing to Claypool the rest of the day, mostly on passing downs. Their success rate was 36% on the day. It's hard to say, but unless they're, they have a little bit more time, more timeouts, they might have had a better chance of whittling it down the field. But still, I mean, they had a 50%, they had a 50% success rate on the day passing, but they only have a 25% success rate on passing downs, which is not just yards to go. Mm-hmm. It all, I mean, like, Passing downs we do find we do define by yards to go. Yeah. But a drive that starts with two minutes left is with with even with one timeout is functionally a passing down mm-hmm. the entire time. So we were only allowing them to be successful on one out of four plays when we knew they were gonna pass. That's true. So that I still think the chances of them stringing together a successful drive on that on that drive were pretty low. Mm-hmm. But that's just me. No, that makes sense. I mean, they might have got one more first down out of it, but that's still like you said, at 25% of the time, they don't have enough chances, statistically speaking, to be successful by the end of it, as, as far as we can see. Mm-hmm. And that's our show, Nathan. 
We did it. We did it. We made a show. Check out our merch store. Check out our <laughs> Patreon. Just, just, just bash that subscribe button. Bash every subscribe bash button. It. Bash, bash it. Hey, you did Hit just it. listen to Chapel Bell Curve, though, and you could listen to it literally anywhere that you can find podcasts and continue to do so. Mm-hmm. If you have a friend in your life that likes football or maybe not doesn't like football yet because it's too hot, the takes are too hot, then let them know that this exists and we would really appreciate that. Uh, like we said earlier, if you do want to get in touch with us or have your questions answered on air, then send them to us. Hashtag AskCBC or send them to us on good old Gmail, chapelbellcurve at gmail.com. Also, check out the merch store that we talked about. The link will be in the show notes. The link is on our website at chapelbellcurve.com. Uh, it's a little Etsy store. You can smash that button too. Smash the button. Smash your favorite store button. Buy a shirt. We'd be very appreciative. There yeah. will also be some cold weather. Yeah. We will be taking a break for the bye week. We'll have our own bye week. And then we'll be back next week with the Tennessee preview. Yeah. If we get a wild hair, we'll talk to you. Who can say? Yeah. But uh, we like our wives and our lives. And so we're going to go make those things happy for a minute too. Yeah, absolutely. It's been so great to be with all of you this point this year. We want to thank you for on the Notre Dame preview week, giving us what is unequivocally the most successful day of chapel bell curve ever yep that is Um, true and we couldn't be happier with the community that you guys are creating around us and i say that to the patrons that are listening to us live now but also just to all the people who follow us on facebook and twitter and who are just making this thing happen man yeah we are so glad that there i I feel good every day that there are other people out there in the world that think like i think Mm -hmm. and nathan nathan jokes about this a lot that the average listener of chapel bell curve is a white former red coat in midtown atlanta but that is pretty untrue just from the numbers alone there are a lot more of you that we don't acknowledge enough and we just want to say thank you for listening also mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so uh, absolutely and yeah. it, it's pretty surreal still to know how many people are actually listening to this stupid podcast we do every week yeah but thank you thank you for doing that so yeah we will catch you in the classic city this weekend i'll be there um i won't be around the stadium but i guess you could see me when i go get a beer or something yeah but until then go dogs go dogs